Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week on the podcast, our hosts, Dr. Lynn Coak and Serene Musselman, are joined by Sue Diaz. Sue is a research librarian by profession who spent 30 years chasing information and pursuing data in academic and corporate settings. She followed God's call to attend Northern Seminary in 2019 to prepare for ministry in the afternoon of life. She resides in Edwardsville, Illinois with her husband, John. Their daughter, Alicia, studies engineering at a university in Arizona. Welcome, Sue. Thanks so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. Oh, it's great to be here. Lynn, Serene, my sisters, it's good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I am really excited about the topic that we are covering today. It's about St. Cecilia. And I think she's a rather unknown saint, which is sad. Um, But you did a lot of research on her. And I thought it'd be fun to share her story um, with our listeners. Um, But I, so I'd first like to have you talk to us just a little bit about who she is uh, and and why why you've become so interested in her story? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I had some options when I was choosing which saint to do some research on, um, preparing for Italy. And um, so I chose Cecilia because she's a Roman. She was a Roman citizen and she she just exhibited such strength um, and uh her character just was shining through in just a little bit of her story that I heard um, and did a little bit of reading. So I, I pursued a little bit more and just got wrapped up in it. I started researching and I could not stop because it was such a fascinating um, and very inspiring story. So I'm excited to, to get to share that story with you. Yeah, yes. And you referenced Italy. That was a fun time. In January, a number of Northern students, along with Dr. Sandra Glon from Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, we went to Italy for a little over two weeks and looked at the artwork uh, that depicts women uh, and their activities in the in the ancient church and medieval church. Um, And there's a special sculpture of St. Cecilia that is breathtaking, but I, that's where we'll end up. But I, we don't want to start at the sculpture because that's kind of the end of the story. But can you, can you tell us a little bit about uh, St. Cecilia, just her, her life and, uh, and her death? Okay. Yeah, I'm glad to, you might need to um, get the cane out and drag me off the stage because I could go on for a while. So (laughs) just give me a wave. Um, So Cecilia, you say she's not well-known, and that's true in Protestant circles. However, Cecilia is very well-known. She's still venerated today by um, Catholics, Orthodox Church, Lutherans, Anglicans, all know St. Cecilia. She is part of their their church calendar. And every November 22, they venerate her, they honor her. That's her feast day. And so she's known, maybe not in Protestant circles, which is a shame. You probably know people named Cecilia. You probably know churches that are called St. Cecilia. Um, so let me tell you her story. She, she, was, she lived in the third century, and she was born in Rome. She was born of a, of a noble family. Uh, she lived in Rome on the other side of the Tiber River in an area called Trastevere, which means across the river. <laughs> um, she, uh, at, at the marrying age, at the ripe age of 
probably 13, 14, 15, her family decided that she was to be married and they chose the man that she was to marry. But she had become a Christian as a girl. And she had promised the Lord because of his calling that she would remain a virgin and that she would not marry and that, that would, she would be married to Christ instead. And so she, she had the courage to subvert, to, to go against what her family and what her culture was, was insisting that she do. And she said, no, I'm not going to get married. Long story short, um, the, the man that she was supposed to marry becomes a Christian, Valerian was his name. And he, he and his brother become Christians, and they become what's called bone gatherers. There's a wonderful book by Denzi called Bone Gatherers. And so their, their role is to go and to gather the, the bodies of the martyrs and, and bury them. But they are arrested by the prefect, you know, and they are um, executed for their Christian faith. Cecilia herself becomes a bone gatherer in that process. She goes and she retrieves their bodies, and in that process... And I can't even imagine retrieving the body of your husband and his brother. Anyway, so she's, she's in the process of doing that. And the prefect, prefect um, detains her and says, what are you doing? And she makes the classic martyr uh, confession, I am a Christian. And he says, well, that's your loss because I hold the power of life and death. And her wonderful line is, she says in response to him, you think you have the power of life and death, but really all you have is the power to take life from those who are enjoying it, but you cannot give life back to the dead. So you are, all you are, you little man, don't think she said that, all you are is a minister of death. Um, and so he immediately, of course, said, send her home. She was a, a noble person. So she, he didn't, he wanted to avoid a public spectacle of her death. So he sends her home. They lock her in her bathroom, which in her insula, in that first century home, the, the bathroom would have had steam. And so they, they put as much fire as they could get going and they attempted to kill her in her bathroom by steam. It didn't work. The Lord intervenes. She survives. So he, the prefect sends his executioner um, back with a, a more sharp instrument and says, behead her. Well, he comes to her home. He, after three tries, She's still alive. And again, God's mysterious, miraculous intervention saves her. She lives three days. And in those three days, um, you can imagine that the story spread and people came and people were becoming Christians. And her, she was giving her testimony, even to the point of death. And then she finally dies. And uh, they take her and they bury her in the catacombs of St. Alexis, which again, back when we were visiting Italy, we, we had the the amazing opportunity to to visit San Calixtus and to see where Cecilia was buried. Now that that is such a powerful story, and her testimony, at one level, is just so simple. I am a Christian, mm-hmm. um, and yet it is so profound. Now you mention that her husband and his brother were killed, so she eventually married. But was it a regular marriage, or what was their marriage like? Ah. They do, um, because he became a Christian and he was baptized, she agrees to marry him. And they both together decide that they would remain chaste in their marriage, um, still honoring the call that God placed on them. And that's how they, they would, well, of course, they weren't married very long before their lives ended. Exactly. Yeah. And that is um, an interesting kind of footnote at this time that there were marriages, um, especially of nobility, where that was sort of a, um, 
a, a way to, to continue the um, property um, <laughs> and, and the high standing in culture um, amongst noble families. But there was this, um, didn't last very long in church history, but this idea that people would be married, but they wouldn't share a marriage bed. They would instead, yes, in, in, remain celibate. And in her case, remain a virgin. Yeah. So it was a thing then that we really don't, we don't have something similar uh, in the West. We don't think of marriage in, in that way, but that was um, yeah, just a part of the culture amongst Christians for a short window of time. Um, when you think about how she died um, and the fact that there she is in her bathroom um, and she's kind of laid out, that laying down, um, that moment is uh, memorialized in a very famous sculpture. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Sure, it's it's a quite a miraculous story. So um, so she's buried in the the, the catacombs there at Saint Saint Calixtus. Fast forward to um, the eight eight twenty, but the early ninth century, and there's a pope named Pascal the first, and he decides he's going to he wants to reinvigorate light church life, and so he goes he sends people out and they gather all the bodies, all the relics of the martyrs and the saints that are in the catacombs and brings them into the city of Rome. That had been illegal. There was a, a law that required bodies to be buried outside for hygien, hygienic reasons. Um, so he brings all those bodies back in, including Cecilia. Um, and he's going to put Cecilia into her, her church. And her church, by the way, was built from her church on the top of her, I'm sorry, built on the top of her home. So um, the today's St. Cecilia Church in Rome in Trastevere is is on top of the ruins of her home. And if you visit um, her church today, you can actually go down, go down the stairs and you can find the ruins of her home. But anyway, so in, in the catacombs, the, the Pope goes to find her and to bring her body back into the church. And they open her, her tomb, her sarcophagus, and her body is intact. It's incorruptible, as they call it. Um, she's still wearing the robe of silk and gold that she died in. And so... It's just a, a miraculous, a miraculous thing. Um, and so they, they translate her from the catacombs to her, where she now rests in, in Rome, in, in her, her basilica. If you want to go fast forward even more to the year of 1599, some, I don't know what it was, some anniversary of the church, maybe. I don't know. But they opened her sarcophagus again. So eight, what, 700, 800 years later, and they opened her tomb. And there are official church historians there. Um, there's an artist there present. So many authorities are there witnessing this. They open her sarcophagus, sarcophagus again, and her body is still intact. She's still incorruptible. Um, and so the sculptor, that the artist that was standing there was commissioned to create a sculpture of her in the state of repose. And it's, it, it, it is there. It's still um, in her basilica, and they made a copy, which is also in the catacomb, which we saw. And the statue is, is haunting. If I could describe it, um, and anyone out there, you could Google it to go look for it. It's, it's, it's Cecilia laying on her side, her knees drawn up. Her head, you can't see her face because her head is turned down. Her hair just flows onto the floor in front of her. And her hands, you can see her hands and her feet, everything to great detail in the robes. It's just, and it's brilliantly white. And it's just, it's just 
and her hands were put in the um, sort of the church gang signs where you, she's got three fingers for the Trinity and one finger, God in one, God in three, one God in three. So it's just a beautiful, just beautiful. And I love your word haunting. I think that really is the case. It's it's mesmerizing. You, It's almost as though they've captured her incorruptibility in that stone somehow. The stone seems alive, if you will. I mean, it is absolutely gorgeous and gives rise, I think, to um, one of the perhaps less emphasized teachings that we find in Paul's work uh, about the resurrection of the body. It's one of the things that the church in these in the age of the martyrs um, and shortly after that um, focused quite a bit on how the flesh decays and that in our raised bodies, they will be incorruptible. In fact, uh, in Handel's Messiah that we often hear uh, at Christmas time, right after the Alleluia chorus, is a fabulous song about we will be raised incorruptible. And I love that, uh, love that music. Um, but it's our hope, it's our promise, it's what Christ has done. So, I, I as we look at, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, towards the end of that chapter, we have Paul saying, you know, there's a mystery here, right? We're going to be changed. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed, right? And the perishable, Paul says, must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And, and so this promise of eternal life in a raised and glorified, transformed, immortal, imperishable body with no rot, mm -hmm. right? It, it's, it has life within itself. Mm -hmm. um, that hope was so strong, especially among the martyrs oh, yes. and, and the church at this time. And so there um, grows this, uh, conviction that we might even have a taste of that incorruptibility here and now. And so St. Cecilia's story is a testimony of that conviction that we see a sliver of it now of what all of us will enjoy in the, uh, in the life to come um, when Christ returns and the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable. And as Paul says, then death has been swallowed up in victory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that, think, go ahead. I, I think that that's what, that's what drew the early church and the medieval church congregants to these holy sacred spaces was to, to be, to be present where the relics were. There was some that, that, her body, her intact body was, was hope to them, but it was also just like a bridge to the eternal. And like just to be in the presence through that, there was something very mystical for them about that. Whether yeah. it was an entire body or like we, we saw a finger or whatever body part it was that remained intact was, was a sign to them as a symbol of that hope that they had. 
That's right. That's right. It's not that she herself had power in and of herself, right, exactly. but her testimony uh, was um, evidenced through God's power. Exactly. Exactly. You know, as you've reflected then not only on St. Cecilia, but looking at the ancient women, the saints, the martyrs, what are some of the takeaways you have, the maybe some big ideas that you um, that you've kind of distilled from your from your exploration and research? Sure. Well, there's a few. I, I, I think the first one, it's, it's going to sound trite, um, but they were amazingly courageous and they took they took on an empire, really. They took on the Roman Empire. They stood before prefects, before emperors, before those in authority, and they said, No, this is my body, and I I am using my body and God calls me to use it. And that's that was very subversive in a culture that told them what they had to do with their bodies. Same with their voices. They had voices they, um, that they could use in speaking that that I am a Christian and, and stated very clearly. Um, there's a couple of verses that come to mind, both from chapter 12. One is the, I wonder in my inspired imagination, if Cecilia knew the book of Romans or had heard maybe Romans 12, where Paul says, present your bodies and living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is her reasonable worship. Or Revelations 12, I think of the voice, you know, that they will conquer the accuser because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of the testament. So it's using their body and their voices in a very, very courageous way. And I think that that should inspire us and challenge us really today. And then I also think of, um, I'd like us to be aware that these, these saints, they may not be wildly popular now, but they were wildly, wildly popular back in the medieval time. Or people loved to, uh, to hear their stories, to go to the churches and to see them in this, in the brilliant mosaics. Um, to, to, the mosaics were all, were lifelike, and they were always a frontal pose, so that uh, a pilgrim or a congregant could stand right before them, and as if having a conversation with them. And I want to be clear that the veneration of saints—it wasn't so much praying to them. We often get we Protestants get hung up. Oh, we shouldn't pray to saints. Well, we're not praying to them; we're praying with them. It's a conversation like we have with God, but it's very, very much different. Of course, it makes me think of. Um, you know, when we lose a loved one, we often keep things around him. I'm sitting at my mom's kitchen table, and, and I miss her dearly. She's gone 10 years, and I've got photos and things that remind me of her. Um, and not a day goes by that I don't talk with her. You know, just have that internal conversation. I think when I think of veneration of saints, that's what I, I think, how we need to be thinking with that. Nothing supernatural going on there, but just keeping them alive in our memory. That they, they don't, saints don't have to be living to be an encouragement. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Sue, when you talk about these stories of courage in these saints, and if we do find ourselves in a church where, as you shared, maybe we we don't hear these stories as frequently today, particularly in certain traditions, we talk about them less. Uh, we often turn to stories in the Bible, uh, like David facing Goliath or Esther in the king's court, um, to inspire us to courage in our you know walks of following Jesus. And I wonder, in your studies, how do you see the stories of these saints, um, these early martyrs, 
enriching our conversations about courage for our faith today. Do you have any thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, I would love to to get a rave of a momentum going where where teachers and preachers of the word start understanding and start getting to know these women of our of our legacy, the church legacy, um, and bringing them out from the shadows and amplifying their voices. And um, I, I I can think of all kinds of creative ways to bring to bring um, study of the saints or the martyrs into into preaching or teaching. Use the art. Would it be great if there was a place where we could go to get information about these women and to find the art associated with them? Segue to the visual museum, but we'll hold that. But I think we can, as teachers and preachers, we can bring their stories and make them come alive and align them. Like kind of like what I just did with with Romans twelve and Revelation twelve, and and they can encourage us and be inspiring to us as well. Um, a few months ago in my own Bible study, I had just taken a class with Beth Felfer Jones and um, studied the creeds and the Nicene Creed and how central that is to the unity of the church and how needed that is today where so many issues divide us. But if we could just come together and, and hang on to the creed all together. Um, so what I did was I, I wove together the stories of three pre-murder women and I wove them in with the Nicene Creed. And so we studied that those three things together and split it into three, seeing like a holy number. Um, and, you know, I forget, Thecla represented the first one. And anyway, I used Thecla and Blandina and Felicitas, I believe, um, and just covered the three sections of the Nuncine Creed, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So I think there are lots of creative ways. It's just a matter of inspiring people to do that. Can you give us, uh, a, that sounds so creative, I love that. Thecla, Blandina, and who was the third? Felicitas. Felicitas, yes. Okay, so uh, maybe our listeners know, maybe not, but those are three very early saints, uh, martyrs, Thecla being in the second century, same with Blandina later in the second century, and then Felicitas um, martyred in 203. Blandina and Felicitas are both slaves. As you can, you fill us in a little bit more uh, detail about how you feel Thecla Blandina and Felicitas help us understand the Nicene Creed better. Can you tell us just a? We're trying to steal your secret here. They're, they're, our listeners have their pencils out and they're ready to <laughs> get their Bible study <laughs> from you. I am so happy to share. I will send you the, the Word document. I have the whole thing written out. If anyone wants to email me, I would be happy to send it. You can take it and do whatever with it that you'd like. But basically, I called it, um, I am a Christian, our confession, confidence, and calling. And so I aligned those three words, confession, confidence, and calling with those three three martyrs. And now you're pulling on my memory here. Um, <laughs> so I think um, Thecla was the first one, and it was confession. And I think I chose her because... Um, she was so verbal, and we have her. We have the acts of Paul and Thecla, and we can see her words. And so, she had a very clear confession. Um, and of course, the first section of the Nicene Creed is "I believe in one God, Father Almighty," um, and just sort of align those things together. And then, so confidence would have been the Blandina. Oh, I don't remember. Um, but I could see that with Blandina being confident because she is one of the remaining one of two 
the last martyrs of a group of martyrs that um, were martyred uh, in, as I say, around 177 or so. And her, at one point in the arena, she is on a stake and the onlookers look at her and they see Christ raised up before them as though on a cross and they see Christ. And that, that is such, uh, and she speaks that I, I'm a Christian and that testimony. Um, and there's nothing vile about us, right? That she's all the lies that were told about Christians. She says they're not true. And I'm displaying that in my body as people see Christ. And it's an amazing, she's a slave woman and yet people see Christ. And that's a profound testimony, I think, to the suffering Jesus mm -hmm. and how um, women are called, no matter what their class or status, mm -hmm. to imitate Christ and they can and others, the church see that, yeah. I'm thinking about, I think maybe the third section on calling was Thecla because she had this, she didn't just confess, I am a Christian, but she was called and went out and followed kind of in Paul's footsteps and preached and taught and followed the spirit very closely. So that seemed to align with the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And these saints, we, we've talked um, about Felicitas and Perpetua. Um, and we have um, their Saints Day, like St. Cecilia, remembered uh, mm -hmm. in the churches. Yeah. The neat thing about those feast days is they were considered their birthday. Uh, so a saint's birthday was really the day that they died and began their new return, not new, but their new, new creation. And that's but, such a wonderful uh, truth to frame things that way. I mean, we who remain are grieving because um, mm -hmm. we miss them. Like you were saying about your mom, you know, you miss her every day. But the the hope that we all have is this new life in Christ that get, we are we are not without hope, right? As uh, as Paul encourages the Corinthians again in chapter fifteen of First Corinthians. Um, you mentioned uh, how these stories animate, and you've also referenced mosaics and sculptures. Um, and then you had a little teaser in there about the Visual Museum, which you are very involved in. So yes, uh, uh, there are a couple of colleagues of mine, Dr. Sandra Glan, who I mentioned, and then also Dr. George Kalansis at Wheaton College in Illinois um, that have received a grant to be able to produce a what we call a visual museum, that is um, a a online, totally free exhibit of artwork of women in the early church, with some description and some information to help readers understand the story and the timeline. Um, and how uh, of the early church into the medieval church and how important at all levels, women's lives, their words, their actions, their teachings, their financial support, all of that impacted the church. We would not be the church that we are today without them. And you're very involved in the visual museum. You want to talk a little bit about that and what has drawn you to, uh, to be excited about working with this in this project? 
Sure, sure. I, I first heard about the Visual Museum um, taking a class with you um, last summer, the early women in the early church. Um, and you mentioned the Visual Museum as a place where more we, we could get to know these these ancient saints and martyrs and, um, in one place and get information about them. And as a librarian, I was thinking that's just perfect. You know, really, that's so lacking. Um, and how wonderful it would be to be able to send send people there and be able to download photos to use in these these Bible studies or sermons, et cetera. Um, and so, uh, as part of my my project, my thesis project at Northern, I'm I'm honored and delighted to to work on the Vision Museum. Um, there's another librarian, Josephine Stringer, who's also a Northern student. And it's, we, we, Josephine and I are working hard on getting this thing launched. Um, and so we, we just marvel, like, for such time as this, there are two librarians gathered to work on this project. <laughs> so that's a God thing, right? He's working, he knew. Um, but on our trip in Italy, we, we, uh, we had Shala Graham, an amazingly gifted photographer with us. And so she was tasked with taking all the photos that she could take of all the minute and the art. Um, and so she, she brought back almost 600 photos. And so that's partly what I'm doing now is, is cataloging and, and making a very, very, very precise inventory of what those photos are and who they depict. And all the symbols, is, yeah, the symbolic items that are in there. It's, there's a lot. So there is so much. I know you just begin to explore the, the art side of things or the theology side of things or the historical ramifications. All of it is just there. And, uh, and we've got to keep it real short <laughs> so people can actually uh, use the use the right. uh, material without having to read a book. Um, but yeah, this will launch next month, the uh, end of March. So we're very excited uh, for that. And um, Visual Museum will continue to uh, promote that and give our listeners a, a link that they can use when uh, when it's up and running. So. Yeah. Well, Sue, thank you so much for introducing us to St. Cecilia. And uh, the, if uh, our listeners are uh, interested, of course, please uh, take advantage of Sue's offer to share with you her Bible study that she did, uh, looking at a couple of other uh, martyr saints, Thecla, Blandina, and Felicitas. Um, and I would also just note for those of you who are interested um, in this whole idea of the saint and the incorruptibility, there is a book called The Incorruptibles, a study of incorruption in the bodies of various saints. It was done by, written by Joan Carol Cruz, and that's in the show notes. Um, if you'd just like an introduction to what we've been talking about a little bit from um, a very accessible, uh, in, in a very accessible way, so. Thank you again so much, Sue, for sharing your passion with us for St. Cecilia. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. You've been listening to the Alabaster Jar podcast. We release new episodes every week, taking on issues that impact women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. So please share, subscribe, and join us back here next week for a brand new episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Sue Diaz, we've left some links for you in today's episode description, including her email where you can reach her for the Bible study on saints. 
And we also have left a link where you can find The Incorruptibles, a study of incorruption in the bodies of various saints by Joan Carol Cruz. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.